Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast, where we discuss a range of issues in the fast-moving field of biomedical informatics. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore, and we are coming to you from Penn Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find us at bmipodcast.org. Ritchie, and it is great to be back to host episode three, our fourth episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the Idea Factory of the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics. Sitting next to me is co-host Jason Moore. Jason, what have you been up to since our last recording? Hi, Marilyn. It's uh, great to be back with you today. Um, I have had some much-needed time off over the holidays. I had multiple days of downtime, which was much, much needed because last year was a crazy busy year. Um, it was funny. I was meeting with one of our assistant professors the other day, and he was telling me that uh, last year was the busiest year he's ever had in his life. And I just started laughing and told him that, look, you know, this is every, that you're going to be saying this every year from here on out. This is the life of a professor. Every year is the busiest of your life. Um, had a great time at the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing uh, the first week of January. And this was the 25th year of PSB, so it was a major, major milestone. And this was my 20th year at PSB. I think I've missed two in those 20 years, but this has really been a staple in my conference schedule. And I think we'll say a few more words about that later. Uh, but I really enjoyed PSB. It was, I think, probably the best one I've been to out of the 20 years. Uh, a lot of artificial intelligence, a lot of machine learning content, a lot of precision medicine content, all things I'm interested in. So that was really nice. Uh, I've also been really busy with grants, um, just multiple grants, uh, my own grants, helping other people with other grants. So just uh, crazy busy with grants right now, and that's going to continue over the next few months. I'm also teaching right now. I teach a course called Special Topics in Biomedical Informatics, which is a required course for our certificate program and our master's program in biomedical informatics. And this is a discussion-based course. Uh, we read papers, the students present them, and then we have a discussion about them. We had class yesterday, uh, really great discussion about AI and machine learning and healthcare, and we, we got to review some historic papers, some of Ted Shortliff's early papers on expert systems, and, uh, and then uh, we also discussed Eric Topol's great review uh, on deep learning that we, that we mentioned um, earlier in the podcast. Marilyn, what have you been up to? Mm. Well, your course is one of the things on my list to get ready. So I'm actually doing a couple of weeks of that later in the semester on some precision medicine stuff. So yeah, thinking about and getting ready for teaching is is always good at the start of the semester. Um, I would say, you know, post-holidays, which were a really good break, um, it, it has felt like, like it's hard to believe it's the end of January. It's been so busy and I feel like we just had the holiday break like three days ago, but it's already the end of the month. We've been really busy formatting and submitting papers. I mentioned, I think, on the last podcast that I had students working on some high-impact paper submissions. Now the holidays are over. They have all been submitted, and they've gone out for review, which is, on the one hand, like so incredibly exciting. So we have one under review at Nature, one at Science, and one at the American Journal of Human Genetics, different graduate students. 
which I'm super excited, and they are on pins and needles. They check <laughs> every day to see if there's an update. They are so stressed out. And I'm like, guys, your papers went out for review. It's time to celebrate. Like that's that's <laughs> yeah. really as good as you could expect, you know, of a graduate student. So it's been really fun for me, but man, they are so stressed. Um, the other things are uh, we've been doing a lot of brainstorming. You know, I love the start of a new year. Everybody is excited, and you know, what what are our goals for this year, and what do we want to achieve? So we've been having a lot of conversations around projects, you know, for those students that just submitted big papers, they're now onto the next aims of their thesis. So we've been designing studies and what are they going to work on to, you know, wrap up and graduate and for other projects, just doing a lot of brainstorming. So that's been fun to just kind of at the whiteboard, think about science. So I've been really enjoying that. Um, and then also grants, you know, the, the deadlines are coming. Uh, there are several. And so it's been a lot of, of grant planning and writing and, and paperwork. But, um, but yeah, it's been a great start to the year. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few quick announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us at bmipodcast.org. You can leave us feedback by email at feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter at bmirpodcast. And we have a Facebook page. And we'd also encourage you to leave us feedback on iTunes. That helps uh, drive up the visibility of the podcast. And we, uh, But we would love to hear from you in any way that's uh, comfortable for you. My name is Chris Longhurst. I am the Chief Information Officer at UC San Diego Health, and you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Mary Lynn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is informatics journals. Jason will introduce this topic. Thanks. Uh, one of our listeners recommended that we discuss informatics journals and how to choose where to submit papers. So Marilyn and I made a list of what we think are some of the top informatics journals, and we'll go through a few of these and dis discuss a little bit of our uh, experience with each. And let me say, these are uh, not meant to be an absolute list of the top journals. There are certainly a number of good informatics journals, and if you have ideas about uh, comments you'd like to make about informatics journals that we do not mention, please feel free to uh, provide that feedback to us. We'd love to hear from you. So let me first say a few words about my general publishing philosophy. I'm a big believer in science communication, and I think that it is our responsibility to deliver our research results to the scientific community as rapidly as possible. The sooner we get interesting and accurate results published, the sooner others can benefit from it. Slowing down the publishing of results to shop around for a high-impact journal might be of interest for your career, but it's maybe not always the best interest of society. As such, I've always leaned toward publishing in journals that provide no-nonsense reviews in a timely manner. Rapid publication also accelerates the rate of scientific discovery because you can move on to the next project faster and others can benefit from the work. So here's an example. Um, one of my favorite journals, and this is not an informatics journal, but we've certainly published some informatics papers here, is the journal Human Genetics. And 
this is one of my go-to journals when I want to publish something quickly, uh, no nonsense, get it out there, and uh, it's a journal with a, a decent impact factor. Um, so we submitted a paper there some years ago, um, two papers on the same day, one to human genetics and one to a competing genetics journal that I won't mention. Uh, the paper in human genetics was reviewed, revised, accepted, and published online before we got the first review from the other genetics journal. Wow. It was amazing. And, I, and that's been my experience every time with human genetics. Um, I don't think I've ever had a paper published there that from first submission to electronic publication took more than three or four months. Super fast. And I've always gotten good reviews, no-nonsense reviews, helpful reviews. Um, so anyway, I love that journal. So that's just an example. If, you know, if I have a choice between publishing in human genetics or going with a journal that I know is going to be slower, even if it's a higher impact, I'm going to go with human genetics. So anyway, I put a premium on thoughtful, rapid reviews and rapid publication. Uh, I also tend to favor open access journals and have found that this is increasingly important to my students and postdocs. Um, Interestingly, uh, one of the things I've noticed throughout my career is that my papers tend to be cited more than the impact of the journals I publish in. So on one hand, you could argue that I should be sending papers to higher impact journals. On the other hand, you could say it doesn't matter because they get noticed and cited anyway, which is what I think is uh, more likely the case. Uh, so the way I look at it, I think um, uh, about all the time and the headache I save by not hopping from high-impact journal to high-impact journal with every paper and getting things out and getting them out uh, rapidly. So anyway, uh, Marilyn, do you have a publishing philosophy that you adhere to? I do. And um, it, it's funny because it, it is a philosophy. It's almost like a religion, how, what, how people approach publishing. Um, so for me, I agree with you about being fast. You know, it's it's actually rare that I have many papers submitted to high-impact journals. What's happening right now in my group is an anomaly. It's never happened before. I think in addition to getting the papers out early, being good for society, I think it's also really important for trainee development. I think a great part of the learning process is the writing and submitting and revising of papers. And so I encourage students and postdocs to submit multiple papers. I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the trainees when I make them wait and hold results for a really long time for a big paper. So I try to get them to publish multiple smaller papers rather than holding holding up for the bigger one. Um, typically, if a student or trainee does want to do a high-impact paper, I typically encourage them to do that only after they've already submitted two or three other smaller papers on other things so that they've gotten that training and experience kind of behind them and they they understand the process. And then if they really want to hold something up, I'll allow them to do it. But I think it's so important to learn how that process works and the revising papers, like all of that is part of it. Um, one more thing that I think is important is encouraging people to publish not just your most exciting, great findings, but all of the lessons you learned and failures that you had along the way, especially in the methodology space, you know, a lot of times we try lots of things that don't work before we find something that does work. And I really try to encourage my group to put those things into the paper. So even if it's 
kind of a in the supplement in the main paper it only has a sentence or two that says you know we also tried these other things that failed see supplement for more details that saves other trainees from wasting a ton of time trying an obvious set of experiments if you tried them and they failed we should report that and put it out there and and sometimes we've even published a couple of papers that were only lessons learned it was a whole series of failures that nothing ever worked and we debated whether publishing it was the right thing to do. But if you've invested a lot of time, you're confident that what you did was done correctly. It just did not work for the problem. I think that's so important to put out in the literature for other people to learn from. And those so, papers can be highly cited as well. People absolutely. love to read those kind of papers. They're absolutely. very informative. Um, and I think you know most of our great ideas emerge from somebody else's bad idea. You hear it and you go, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. Why didn't you do it like this? And then you do and it works. And so I think it's just so important. So that's really my philosophy. That's great. Um, so now let's move on. Marilyn and I have made a list of journals. And we're just going to step through these one at a time and give a brief overview of the journal and a, a few thoughts about each. And again, this is not meant to be an absolute list, I'm sure. Um Others in the field would uh, take issue at some of the things, maybe some of the journals we've listed here or some of the journals we've left off. Um, but again, please send us feedback. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts about these journals or others. So uh, I'm going to start with the journal Bioinformatics, uh, published by Oxford. And uh, this is uh, just a short uh, quote from their webpage. Uh, they call themselves the leading journal in the field. Bioinformatics publishes the highest quality scientific papers and review articles of interest to academic and industrial researchers. Its main focus is on new develops in, developments in genome informatics and computational biology. This is one of our highest impact journals. It has an impact factor of about four and a half uh, in 2018. Uh, it's not open access, but it does provide uh, that option for an additional fee that will cost you more than $3,000. Um, so that's nice if you really want open, open access. And so what I did was a scan of recently published papers. And I'm just going to touch on a few of these here to give you a, a sense of the kind of papers that are published in this journal. Uh, there were papers on genome assembly, gene networks, imaging genomics, single-cell genomics, multiomic analysis, RNA splicing, protein mass spectrometry, and molecular docking. So that kind of gives you a sense. A lot of omic, a lot of heavy-duty omics kind of stuff in this journal. Um, we, uh, my lab has published several papers in bioinformatics over the last uh, two or three years, um, most recently on automated machine learning analysis of genomics and metabolomics data. Um, so this is a great journal for publishing anything related to omics analysis. It also includes a two-page applications note for publishing software papers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. And we've published quite a few papers here specifically around software packages. So we've done both the two-page application note, which I think is a fabulous format for getting tools out there that you've developed. So R packages or small Python tools, just to get them out. They are PubMed listed. It helps people to find them. They have something to cite when they use your algorithms and methods. Um, but also, they have a mechanism for you to do a, a larger software package paper, and you can go through kind of a tutorial or walk through kind of how to use the software and include an application. So, so I think that's a great place for kind of new software and new methods. 
I guess one thing I'll point out, it is important that you do have a real like natural biological data application for that journal. So bioinformatics does not typically want papers that include only in silico or simulated data. They want some sort of biological problem being applied um, in the publication. Yeah, and let me let me just say in general um, about any of these journals that you know these are some of these are are our top journals and journals that I think um, you know young faculty in our field should aspire to publish in for promotion and tenure. You know, when when I write a lot of promotion letters and it's nice to be able to say this person's publishing in the top journals in our field. That's, you know, something for the young people to keep in mind. The the people that are going to write your promotion letters, you want them to be able to say that. Um, the next journal we'll mention is BMC Bioinformatics, published by Biomed Central. And this is taken from their webpage. Quote, BMC Bioinformatics is an open access, peer-reviewed journal that considers articles on all aspects of the development, testing, and novel application of computational and statistical methods for the modeling analysis of all kinds of biological data, as well as other areas of computational biology. I would consider this a moderate impact journal with an impact factor of about 2.5 in 2018. It is all open access, but it does include a fee of more than $2,000 to publish there. And a scan of recently published papers reveals content related to gene networks, time series clustering, metabolomic uh, modeling, uh, deep learning analysis of microRNAs, geographic linkage disequilibrium patterns, cell microscopy, and microbiome analysis. I have not sent anything to this journal in a long time, and I had a bad experience maybe about 10 years ago um, where I felt like a couple of our papers were not handled very well, there were long delays, um, the editorial decisions based on the reviews did not seem to match some of the things the reviewers said we weren't happy with. Anyway, I had a couple papers that I had sent there and had a bad experience, and and um, I have not sent anything there recently, so I don't know if that was just a couple uh unfortunate events, uh, bad reviews, which happen from time to time. Um, but anyway, uh, so I don't have any recent experience with BMC Bioinformatics, but it is considered one of the, uh, the staples in the field. Mm -hmm. I have published there um, recently, probably maybe two years ago now, and, and the experience was, was fine. Um, actually, that one was pretty good in terms of the timing and the quality of the reviews. But um, I don't think I've had the the bad reviews or the inconsistent decision with reviews, but I've definitely had delays. And um, having been a former managing editor of a different journal, I know how hard it can be to get reviewers to be timely. And um, and I think they were definitely struggling with that for a while, but at least this last time I submitted, it it went pretty quickly and, and we had a positive experience. Um, I think this is another journal, though, that... Um, definitely prioritizes having biological data sets in the submission. I think maybe you can do one with only simulations, but it has to be a pretty solid paper to not include a, a natural biological data set as well. Well, it's good to hear you had a good experience. Maybe I'll give it another try. Um, okay. Uh, next up is PLOS Computational Biology, which is published by the Public Library of Science, or PLOS. And this is taken from their website, PLOS Comp Bio 
features works of exceptional significance that further under our understanding of living systems at all scales, from molecules and cells to patient populations and ecosystems, through the application of computational methods. Readers include uh, life and computational scientists who can take the important findings presented here to the next level of discovery. I would also label this as one of our highest impact uh, informatics journals with an impact factor of about 4.4 .4 in 2018. It is open access and does include a fee of more than $2,000 to publish there. Um, this journal has really um, always stood out for me as being a little different than bioinformatics and BMC bioinformatics. I've always found it to be a little more interested in systems biology and maybe you know, a lot of like network analysis mm -hmm. papers, a little more interested in population genetics and evolution. And so it, it kind of has that that vibe to it that's uh, that content that's a little little different than some of the other other journals. So here's a a, um, a scan of of some of their recently published papers. Uh, they had content related to modeling of actin dynamics, analysis of acoustic monitoring data, evolution, adaptive landscape analysis of enzymes, neural decoding models, and origins of life. So you can see the the types of papers they're publishing are a little different than the, uh, the first two that we mentioned. Mm -hmm. I really like this journal, and we've published here a few times. Uh, uh, my work tends to be a bit more computational and theoretical, and they tend to like things that have stronger biological component. Um, but I especially like their 10 Simple Rule series. Uh, this series uh, included recent papers on 10 Simple Rules for Giving a Job Talk, 10 Simple Rules for Considering Retirement, 10 Simple Rules for Writing a Cover Letter, etc. And they have a whole long, this has been going on for multiple years now, and they have a long series of these papers. And they're very widely read, very widely cited, and I think many of them are very, very informative and useful. Uh, so I think this is a great, great journal for publishing a wide range of different things in computational biology, systems biology, and it has good visibility. Yeah, I agree. I love this journal. And especially the 10 Simple Rules series. Every time I read them, they're just so good. I really want to write one. I even talked to one of the editors about writing one, something like 10 Simple Rules for you know, work-life balance in academia or something. And and it's on my list, but I don't know if I can distill it down to 10 simple rules because it's definitely not simple. <laughs> and I'm not sure there are only 10, but I might try to do it someday. Um, but I agree. I think for me in trying to decide if I submit a paper here, it has to do more with, do I have a really interesting new method that I applied to some data as a proof of concept? Or did I find some interesting biology? Oh, and by the way, I use some sophisticated computation to get there. I think PLOS computational biology is more interested when you have discovered something interesting biological. And yes, it required interesting computational methods, but they're really, they seem to be more focused on the scientific discovery on the biology side, not so much the methodology and kind of the quirks of the, the theory and the kind of parameter search space that you look through with methods, whereas the other two journals are really a little more focused on interesting methods that you apply to some solve some problem. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. Next up is the Journal of Biomedical Informatics, published by Elsevier, and this is taken from their webpage description. The Journal of Biomedical Informatics reflects a commitment to high-quality original research papers, reviews, and commentaries in the area of biomedical informatics methodology, stressing the word methodology here, 
Although we publish articles motivated by applications in the biomedical sciences, uh, the journal emphasizes reports of new methodologies and techniques that have general applicability and that form the basis for the evolving science of biomedical informatics. So this is really, I would say, um, at least maybe a little bit more on the clinical side than some of the journals we've talked about, um, really our primary methodological journal. Um, it also has a moderate impact factor of about three in 2018. It is closed access, um, but it does have a sister journal that's new uh, called uh, the Journal of Biomedical Informatics X that is open access. That seems to be a trend that a lot of journals are now creating an open, uh, open access uh, sister journal. Um, so I, I don't have any experience yet with the open access uh, part of uh, Journal of Biomedical Informatics. So like I said, um, it really focuses on informatics methodology. We published two papers uh, last year, uh, a methodologic paper and a review paper. And uh, that process went reasonably well, although I would say that the review process was a bit on the slow side. Um, so I'll definitely take that into consideration uh, before publishing there again. But otherwise, it was a good, a good experience. A scan of recently published papers there reveals content related to natural language processing, text mining, recurrent neural networks, probabilistic matrix factorization, chat, chat bots, et cetera. So I think you get a, get a sense for the kinds of things uh, they publish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've published there as well. And, and I think you're right. The, the review process was slow. It definitely took a while. It was really high quality, and I was happy with the manuscript in the end, but it definitely took some time. Um, I think that... Um, I go to this journal whenever we have applications that have a, an interesting clinical component, not just biology, but something clinically relevant, and also some component of novel informatics, so some sort of new neural network mm -hmm. algorithm or, or something that has both that clinical component and some interesting methodology. Yeah, it's interesting, this phenomenon of slow reviews. And Marilyn, you and I are editors-in-chief of a journal, which we'll, we'll mention in a few minutes briefly. Um, and, uh, you know, I know in our experience, I think, you know, slow reviews are partly due because reviewers are not responsive. Um, and I know from our experience that it can often take several weeks to even get somebody to agree to review a paper. So that delay, if you go through five or six requests to review and nobody agrees, that process can take two, three, sometimes four weeks or more to even find the reviewers to agree to review. And then you're at the mercy of the reviewers turning the reviews in on time. Mm -hmm. And part of that, it's the editor-in-chief's job or the managing editor's job to, you know, hassle the reviewers, right, to get the reviews in on time. So there are a lot of points of failure in the review process. And, and some journals do this really well, and some journals don't. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it's, it's, you know, it's really somewhat in the hands of the editor-in-chief and the man managing and associate editors to make sure the process moves along. Okay, last journal to mention is the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association, or JAMIA, which is published by Oxford. And this is uh, the blurb taken from their website. JAMIA is the American Medical Informatics Association's premier peer-reviewed journal for biomedical and health informatics, covering the full spectrum of activities in the field. JAMIA includes informatics articles in the areas of clinical care, clinical research, translational science, 
implementation science, imaging, education, consumer health, public policy, uh, and public health. Jamie's articles describe innovative informatics research and systems that help to advance biomedical science and to promote health. So uh, this is also one of our highest impact uh, informatics journals with an impact factor of about 4.3 in 2018. Uh, it's closed access, uh, but does have open access for a fee of about $3,000 for AMIA members. It's more for non-members. And they also just launched, as we've mentioned previously, an, uh, a sister journal called Jamia Open, um, which has been going about a year and a half. So uh, a scan of recently published papers reveals content related to machine learning analysis of sepsis, medical extraction from the electronic health record, privacy preserving models, feature selection, temporal convolution, uh, convolutional networks for critical care, pediatric patient portals, deep learning for natural language processing, and protecting patient privacy in survival analysis. So um, they publish a wide range of, of papers, uh, some clinical applications, and some a little bit more methodologic. Um, this is really our flagship journal in biomedical informatics. Any paper published here will have high visibility in the field. Uh, my only concern with this journal is the review and publishing process can be a little slower than other journals. And I had a student come to me recently and say, I had suggested that they send their paper to Jamia, and they said they wanted to send it to PLOS Computational Biology because Jamia did not accept LaTeX as the, um, uh, the paper format. They require papers in Word. So some of my students are a little more from the computational and engineering perspective and like to write papers in LaTeX. And Jamia, for whatever reason, doesn't accept papers in LaTeX. So uh, if the uh, publisher is listening, uh, I highly recommend that you accept papers in LaTeX because a lot of computer scientists use the LaTeX format and aren't going to send papers to your journal. Wow. Well, thank goodness they don't require LaTeX because I haven't <laughs> done LaTeX since grad school and I wouldn't want to do it again. Um, but anyway, it, so Jamia, yeah, I think it's a great journal. I read it a lot. And it's funny, I was thinking about my papers there and I very rarely submit papers to Jamia. And I, as I looked at my CV, I thought, why? The only papers I think I have in Jamia are from go, like submissions to AMIA that end up paper, you know, submissions to the conference. I rarely just submit a de novo paper. And I, I don't know why. I, there's no explanation other than I think a lot of my clinical informatics papers also include genetics or genomics data. And so we end up going to a genetics journal because that's the application. Um, but I need to pay more attention to it and just try to submit some papers here because I just haven't really done it very much. Okay, so that's our review of what we think are some of the um, prominent journals in our field. Um, love to hear your thoughts about these journals and others that we left out. And um, as co-hosts, we will use our prerogative to just mention our plug our own journal. Marilyn and I are co-editors-in-chief of an open access journal called Biodata Mining, uh, which is about 10 years old now. Uh, a little more than 10 years old. It's a BMC Biomed Central journal. And we um, 
publish papers focused on mining big biological and biomedical data. And uh, it's a great journal. The impact factor is a little over two now, so it's not quite at the level of the other journals we mentioned, but we just thought we'd throw that out there. Yep, and we have a uh, special issue posting on there right now, I believe, for papers related to machine learning. And so if you have papers, check out the website. Yeah, we're really interested in papers on, you know, next generation machine learning methods, really thinking toward the future of machine learning and what's what's next. It's now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Okay, um, so we have a couple news items for you today. Uh, first up, I saw an article on work-life balance, and those always catch my eye, partly because Marilyn is passionate about work-life balance, which is awesome. She's a cheerleader for all of us. Uh, this was published on January 10th by the BBC, and they explore the idea of unlimited time off. Could you imagine having unlimited time off in your job? Your employer says, take as much time off as you feel like you need. So uh, this isn't, I think this is a really interesting idea, and that's why this article caught my attention. And what they say is it doesn't work so well in practice. And what companies who have tried this have found is that employees actually take off less time than is needed for a good work-life balance. So it actually has the opposite effect. And uh, they say that the demands of work make it difficult for employees to pull the trigger and take time off. And I, you know, I think people feel guilty, right, taking time off, especially if you have a busy job and a lot of people that depend on you. And what they recommend is that companies, uh, or what they say companies prefer is forced time off. So they focused on a company called Buffer that abandoned, that tried the unlimited leave policy and abandoned it uh, for strongly encouraging employees to take 15 days off each year. And they accompanied this by an HR tracking system to make sure employees took the time off. So I guess if you only take five days off and it's November, they come to you and say, hey, you know, you're you're not pulling your weight on the time off part of the <laughs> equation here and uh, reprimand you or somehow <laughs> strong arm you into taking time off. Um, so anyway, it's an interesting issue. And there's a link uh, in the show notes to the BBC piece if you're interested. Yeah, I that was such a great piece. And I think it is. It's people feel guilty and they fear they're missing out on something important at work. So if you're the only person taking time off, work is still happening and you've missed out on important meetings, maybe opportunities that you know come about at work, but you have to be there to have the opportunity. Yeah. So I could see that. I mean, I definitely find that that week between Christmas and New Year's when the university is closed is the week that I can feel the most off from work because everybody's off. Like when I take a vacation in the summer with my family, work is still happening. I'm still getting hundreds of emails a day and it's really hard to resist even peaking and just just do a little bit just to take the edge off. But that week that nobody else is working, you can really take off. So I think what I would love to see is a study of not just you make people take 15 days, make everybody take the same days. That way, everybody's off and you can enjoy it and you're not missing out on what's happening in the office. I don't know. That's a good idea. You should try that. Um, the next news item is that one of our friends and colleagues, Dr. Kevin Johnson from Vanderbilt University, just launched a new informatics podcast. Um, it's called Informatics in the Round. 
he describes it as a lively, non-technical conversation with the occasional musical surprise, you know, Vanderbilt is in Nashville, about newsworthy topics in biomedical informatics. In his first episode, he discusses with his guests the question, what is biomedical informatics? We are very happy to see another podcast in this space and very much look forward to listening to future episodes. And we'll have the link to his podcast in the show notes. Yeah, I was really happy to see this. And I, you know, I think we need more informatics podcasts. We are a, we are a discipline that's booming. We have a lot to say, a lot to cover, and uh, no, one of, no one podcast can do it all. So uh, kudos to Kevin and his team. Okay, next up, um, I saw a paper on Archive uh, this month titled The Predictive Power of the Microbiome Exceeds That of Genome-Wide Association Studies in the Discrimination of Complex Human Disease. And this, the, the paper title really caught my eyes, like, whoa, that's, uh, if that's true, that's huge. And what the authors did is they looked at 13 common diseases and they found that microbiome measures are significantly more predictive than risk scores derived from GWAS for all the diseases they looked at except type 1 diabetes. They qualify their findings with statements like predictive ability doesn't imply causation and that this is just a gateway study. But nonetheless, I found this to be very interesting, certainly provocative, and a reminder that our environment, including the microorganisms that live on us and in us, may ultimately be more informative than genetic factors. So I can't wait to see the reaction of the GWAS community to this and uh, future replication studies and bigger studies that can try to validate this. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see a lot more of these data to come. I noticed at conferences lately a lot of vendor booths that were were like 23andMe, but they were of microbiome. So instead mm -hmm. of a spit sample, you send a stool sample and they're, you know, telling you your health risks and they're telling you what you should and shouldn't eat. And they look really interesting. So yeah, I'm excited to see what, what types of things we learn from these data. Yeah, it's a hot area. And uh, so we, we have a link to this paper if you're interested in, in the show notes. Uh, next up is a sad bit of news, at least sad for me. Um, Charles Chuck Peddle died on December 15th, 2019. Mr. Petal, or Chuck as he's commonly known in the community, developed uh, the low-cost 6502 microprocessor that greatly accelerated the development and sale of home computers in the 1970s and 80s. Numerous popular home computers such as the Apple II, the Commodore VIC-20, uh, and my favorite um, old home computer, the Atari 800, all used the 6502 chip, 6502 chip and uh, this was a low-cost chip. Uh, I think it cost something like $10 or $20 at the time. And so it really, you know, prior to that, computer chips were pretty expensive. And this really enabled companies to make inexpensive home computers and sell them. And this led to um, a, what's referred to in the, in ret the retro com computing community, a Cambrian explosion of home computers. And it was kind of an, a fun time. Um and I was just thinking about this recently. 1977 was a big year for multiple reasons, uh, not just uh, computing. Um, uh, first of all, Star Wars was released, the first Star Wars in 1977. I went to see Star Wars with my dad in the movie theater, which was amazing. I was completely blown away by it. And th I've been thinking about this just recently because I just saw the last Star Wars movie. So from 1977, it took me all that time until 2020 to see all of the Star all nine Star Wars movies. So that was a uh, big, 
big. Saturday Night Fever came out that year. Um, uh, on uh, Also, uh, Sanger Sequencing, DNA Sequencing, was published in Science in 1977, which really launched in a big way the molecular revolution that we lived through. Um, on the uh, technologic side, um, one of the first big demonstrations of the internet was in 1977, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and then, of course, home computers uh, really came on the scene. And there were three primary home computers that were released in 1977. Uh, the Apple II, uh, the Commodore PET, and the Radio Shack Tandy TRS-80 all were released in 1977 and went on the market, which meant you could go and buy a computer and take it home and use it for the first time. Um, a couple other tidbits of information from 1977. That was the year the Voyager 1 uh, space probe was launched. Uh, Oracle was incorporated in 1977. And the Atari 2600 game machine uh, was launched, which uh, also used the 6502 processor and really launched the video game industry in a big way. And don't forget, your co-host was born in 1977. Oh my God. I didn't. I didn't even think of that. I'm not even sure I knew what you were, you were born, Marilyn. What a great year for informatics. I had no idea when I was putting this together that you were born in '77. <laughs> that was. is awesome. So you were born in a big year. I was a very very important year. I would great say. Year. Um, okay. All right. So we'll uh, we'll move on. So uh, rest in peace, Chuck Peddle, and thank you uh, for making an impact both on my life personally, but I think computing in general, which has played a very important role in informatics, obviously. All right. Um, next up, uh, I wanted to mention um, a Stanford uh, commentary um, that was published in Nature in January, calling for what's what they call the Human Screenome Project. Their goal, and I quote, is to record the moment-by-moment -moment changes on a person's screen uh, to, to record the moment-to-moment -moment changes, we have built a platform called Screenomics. The software records, encrypts, and transmits screenshots automatically and unobtrusively every five seconds whenever a device is turned on. Uh, they say in this piece that they've collected over 30 million screenshots from over 600 people. Can you imagine having your phone take a screenshot? of you and what you're doing and your surroundings every five seconds during the day. Oh my God. <laughs> you can just imagine um, both how interesting this would be from a voyeuristic point of view and from a big data point of view, um, but also all the potential downsides of this oh and all the goodness. things that could go wrong. So I, um, I think I would file this one under uh, a future. I told you so. Oh, yeah, we're going to hear about this project later. <laughs> Maybe some really good things, but probably also some things we never wanted to learn about what people are doing on their screens. Yeah, the, all the unintended consequences of what seem like good technologic ideas. We were, Marilyn and I were just talking before the show started about 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all the unexpected results that, you know, things that families find out about themselves uh, from, you know, home home DNA testing. And that's that's another example of a technology that seemed like a really good idea, but has real world consequences for families and, and pe people's lives. And the screenshots will probably result <laughs> in the same sorts of things. Absolutely. Um, so we have a link uh, to this commentary in Nature in the show notes and um, an interesting project to keep, keep, keep our eyes on. 
Another piece is uh, an article from Nature. It was a news piece that reported on the study of being uh, on the stresses of being a scientist. Um, this is a quote: "A survey of more than four thousand scientists has painted a damning picture of the culture in which they work, suggesting that highly competitive and often often hostile environments are damaging the quality of research." So around 80% of the survey participants, which were mostly academic researchers in the United Kingdom, believed that competition had fostered mean or aggressive working conditions, and half described struggles with depression or anxiety. Nearly two-thirds of respondents reported witnessing bullying or harassment, and 43% they had said they had experienced it. Um, one more point, the, many blame the funders and the institutes that emphasize performance indicators and metrics, such as the number of publications and the impact factor of journals in which people publish, and said these metrics are stressing the way, stressing people in a way that reduces morale and encourages researchers to game the system. Um, some said it was good management, that if you had good management, you could shelter scientists from this type of pressure, but it was seldom applied. Um, I thought this was a really interesting article. You know, I don't feel super competitive or depressed or anxious the majority of the time. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the training segment. Um, this article kind of prompted some of the training topic we're going to talk about later. Um, but, I, but I think a lot of what's in here, it's real and it definitely exists. And it's something that we need to think about kind of both from the ground up and the top down, I think, to fix that perspective. Because the scientific community, you know, the scientists on the ground can't suddenly all not be competitive and all not strive to meet metrics. The metrics need to shift. So leadership needs to take some role in this. But, but some of this also is that science in general selects for type A competitive people. Like the people who go into the science are the people who were competitive in the sixth grade and, you know, doing science poster competitions and have always been competitive. So there's a little bit of limitation that what I think, you know, leadership is going to be able to do because we have selected for people who are competitive in nature. Yeah, this, this was a, a disturbing news piece for me. And uh, I think we as scientists are under a lot of stress. I think all of it, I mean, we talk about it a lot when we have, you know, off the record conversations, we talk about how much stress we're under for various reasons. And so I think it is part of being a successful scientist is, is feeling a lot of stress. Um, what really struck out, uh, stuck out for me was the, uh, the bullying and the harassment. And there's no question I've seen firsthand bullying and harassment throughout my career. I wouldn't say it's common, but it does occur. Um, and it's hard to understand when it does occur, why people behave like that. But, um, you know, and I think any, certainly any young people or any scientist that is feeling harassed or bullied should, you know, come forward and let colleagues know about it and, um, you know, not ignore it. It's, it should not happen. It should never happen. And I think most institutions, um, you know, are committed to not tolerating that in, in the workplace. Um, so anyway, um, this, this was an interesting piece. I think it's something we should all be aware of, something we should all strive to confront and a lot of room for improvement on a lot of different fronts. Agreed. Okay. So we have a, a link to the show note in the show notes for this piece, uh, in nature, if you're interested in following up on that. And I think this is our, 
Oh, we have two more news pieces. I thought it was our last one. Uh, so if you haven't heard, the Y2K bug is back. And if 10, 10 years ago, um, uh, we no, 20 years ago, sorry, 20 years ago, we went through the year 2000 and, you know, the software, what, you know, a lot of software was not ready to um, handle the rollover to the year 2000. So there was a lot of hoopla about all the computers that were going to crash and et cetera. So many of us lived through the Y2K. So it's kind of funny to see this come back 20 years later. Uh, so the concern today is over what is called the pivot year that allowed programmers to implement quick quick fixes for the Y2K bug that that uh, will now come back to haunt us. So I thought we were done with Y2K. I thought we'd never see this again. So did I. Uh, but it's back. Um, so the following description of this issue comes from an article in ZDNet. So I'm going to read this. So say you're an institution uh, that was founded in 1920. It's safe to assume that you're not sitting on any information dated from before then. So this, this is the philosophy, the rationale for this, um, the way they were fixing the Y2K bugs. And so in the double-digit date recording system, the number 20 becomes your pivot year. And what this means is that data containing a two-digit year between 00 and 20 will be treated as post-2000, right? So, so if a year is prior to 1920 and you've coded it 20, then the computer will think it's 2020, right? Problem solved. Um, and uh, so this means, uh, so, so the year 20 will be treated as post-2000, while years between 20 and 99 will be interpreted as referring to the previous century, okay? So this was a quick fix. Um, now, of course, not all companies and organizations were founded in 1920, but 20 years ago, 2020 seemed like far enough away that developers still chose 20 as their pivot year. So people fixing Y2K bugs put in the pivot year and just assumed, oh, by 20 years from now, you know, these computers will no longer exist. We'll have new technology. It won't matter. It was a quick fix and an easy way to, to solve the Y2K bug. So, um, but now we have computer systems that are going to think this year, 2020, is really 1920 and uh, not be able to handle this. So here we go again. Uh, the Y2K bug is back. And uh, we have a, sh a link here in the show notes if you're interested to the ZDNet article uh, on this. Okay. So finally, I ran across an archive paper by Joe Menke et al. reporting a new rigor and transparency index for assessing the reproducibility potential of scientific papers. So this is a quote from their paper. The tool scores each paper on a 10-point scale, identifying sentences that are associated with compliance with criteria associated with increased rigor for a total of five points and those associated with key resource identification and authentication an additional five points. From these data, we have built the Rigor and Transparency Index, which is an average score for analyzed papers in a particular journal. And they go on to say, our analyses show that the average score over all journals has increased since 1997, but overall remains below five, indicating that less than half of the rigor and reproducibility criteria are routinely addressed by authors. So these are things like did the study report 
the sex of the subjects? Did they include sample size calculations? Um, did the study address blinding of the subjects? Did it identify key biological resources such as the antibodies used, the transgenic organisms, or the cell lines? Um, so the paper suggests that journals need to include criteria for rigor and resource identification and then hold the authors accountable when they publish papers. So I, I thought this was interesting. Um, I think there's probably a lot of work to do on this. I'm not sure their in, uh, how, how useful their index is or whether it will ultimately be validated, but it's an interesting idea. And um, I've certainly read papers that just leave out so many details. You have no idea whether what they did is valid or not or how to reproduce it. You know, you can't find the name of the software they used or the, the settings they used or the parameters they used. Uh, so uh, if we really care about reproducibility and rigor, then we need to have those details in papers. Yeah. And it seems like something that we're definitely evolving toward. I mean, certainly with NIH study sections, that has been the case as well. So now um, reproducibility, uh, authentication of resources have started to become criteria that you start to think about during peer review. Like they're in the list of things for reviewers to consider. So I'm, I'm thinking journals will get there. I think you're right. There is more work to be done here, but it is incredibly frustrating when you read a paper and you know, you, they, they filtered out samples at various steps during QC, but you can't figure out why and how many left at each point. And so if you were going to go get that data set out of dbGaP or it's some other publicly available data and try to recreate it, you can't because you have no idea how many people dropped in each step, things like that, that, that I think they should make more reproducible. And making sure that if they do deposit data um, to allow people to reproduce their results, that they actually include the variables that they use in the analysis in the data. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to dbGaP and tried to replicate something and they leave out a key covariate. They adjust it for smoking, but they don't give you smoking in the data. Or they looked at a gene-environment interaction, but they don't give you the environmental factor. They just give you the genetics factor. So then you can't reproduce anything. Yep. We all have to be more diligent when we're reviewing papers. Absolutely. Okay. So there's a link in the show notes uh, for this paper in, bi in BioArchive. And that is it for the news for today. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned you can, earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, so we have one bit of listener feedback to share with you today, and this was by email, um, and I'm going to read the email. Uh, hello, my name is Jared Rodriguez. I'm an undergraduate junior at Wayland Baptist University studying biology with a minor in computer science. I have been curious about bioinformatics as uh, a master's program and stumbled across y'all's podcast on Spotify. I loved your discussions and the topics they covered. You guys are by far the best and most informative bioinformatics podcast I have come across. I was just wanting to ask if y'all had any advice for a student interested in going into a bioinformatics master's program. Thank you for your time and keep up y'all's amazing work. Much thank Jared Rodriguez. So thank you, Jared. We greatly appreciate the kind words. And uh, 
I guess it partly depends on what kind of master's program you're, or what you want to do with your master's degree. If you are using, some people use a master's as a way to get into PhD training. Um, you know, maybe your grades aren't good enough, or maybe you didn't have any research experience um, and might not be competitive for the type of PhD program you want to get into. Some, pe some people go and do a master's degree. Uh, to prove themselves and get that additional experience. And if that's the case, then I would highly recommend, um, you know, choosing a master's program that offers a master's thesis where you have an opportunity to do research and publish a paper to, to give you that key research experience that will help you get into a PhD program. Now, if you want to use a master's degree to get a job, that's a very different uh, focus. And there are a lot of professional master's degree programs that really provide coursework. Um, and I would say you want a diversity of different coursework, um, not only in bioinformatics methods, but the latest programming skills and data, big data, you know, database skills, you know, learning about things like graph databases and, uh, you know, the latest, uh, latest technology, because those are the things that are going to give you the foundation that you need to then be employed and do a job and be able to contribute uh, to a bioinformatics uh, uh, project. Um, also recommend finding a professional, if, if you do go the professional master's degree route, make sure they give you hands-on experience where you actually do projects, get, get coding experience, uh, you know, learn how to build a pipeline and process data. And uh, so that's what I would look for. I don't know, Marilyn, do you have any, any thoughts about master's programs in bioinformatics? I think the only thing I would add to what you said is um, thinking about thinking a little bit about what type of bioinformatics you're hoping to do when you come out of the program. So is it more in the genome informatics, microbiome, you know, sequence analysis type space or, you know, protein structures and protein function type work? Or is it more on the biomedical informatics side of things where you want to work with uh, electronic health records or, you know, clinical data, even, you know, wearables or environmental data. I feel like the the types of programs that you might choose would differ based on if you want more, you know, working with molecular and cellular data versus population and clinical data. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good point. And we offer a master's degree in biomedical informatics here um, at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, this is a program that we run here in the Institute for Biomedical Informatics. But it's really, I think, along the lines of what Marilyn's saying, it's really targeted at clinicians. We really design this program to uh, help uh, people... MDs doing residency and fellowship training here at the institution to add informatics training into their skill set so they can go out and be clinical informaticians or clinical research informaticians. So the coursework and, and is really designed toward that kind of person. Um, so probably not appropriate for someone going into the more genomic sciences. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Jared, thank you so much for your feedback and best of luck in your pursuits. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, our paper is High Throughput Phenotyping with Electronic Medical Record Data Using a Common Semi-Supervised Approach, and then in parentheses, FECAP. 
This paper came out in Nature Protocols in December of 2019, and we will have a link to the article in the show notes. I chose this paper because it includes a really interesting algorithm for extracting phenotypes from electronic health records, and this is a topic that we have talked about on the podcast quite a few other times. I thought their approach was really interesting. They integrate a semi-supervised approach along with structured data and also data that you extract using natural language processing from the notes. And so they describe this FECAP as a high-throughput semi-supervised phenotyping pipeline. You start with your EHR data that you pull out the structured data, and that goes into one data warehouse. And then you do a natural language processing step and extract information from narrative notes. And then you integrate those procedures with a a bit of manual input and then this machine learning approach that's semi-supervised to try to train the algorithm and identify cases of a particular phenotype. They say that the algorithm component can run in one to two days if you have all of your data extracted out of your EHR data warehouse and available. And then the total time to completion for running something like this can be up to a couple of weeks. The slowdown part is the chart review stage where you validate how well the algorithm did. And of course, that that's a human component. So you have to allow for that time. But after you run FECAP, what you get is a phenotype algorithm. You get a probability of having the phenotype that you were trying to derive for all patients in your data set. And then you get a phenotype classification, yes or no. So cases and controls. So they take that probability and then they bin it into a yes or no. Um, so I thought this was a, a very straightforward algorithm and paper. I thought, you know, they did a nice job describing it. It is very detailed. So nature protocols are, by the nature of the, the type of paper, they go into a lot of detail about the algorithm and how they tested it and how they validated it. They showed... Um, In table two, the types of phenotypes that they developed using this FECAP framework, and they span a lot of different disease areas across a health system. So um, they did uh, breast cancer was the only cancer space, but they had about a half a dozen cardiovascular diseases like hypertension, heart failure, ischemic stroke. They have a couple of endocrine disorders, so type 1 and type 2 diabetes, diabetic neuropathy. They had a couple of gastrointestinal disorders, neurology, psychiatry, pulmonary, and rheumatology. So I thought it was nice to see how this algorithm could apply in a lot of different disease areas. And one of the things that I found most encouraging about it was how it applied across different health systems. So, you know, I have been a part of the Emerge Network, which is an NHGRI-funded network Um, that has been looking at electronic health records and genomics since around 2007. And one of the the biggest challenges that we've had in the last, what is that, 13 years is developing a phenotype algorithm and getting it to work across different hospital systems because everybody has their own EHR. No matter what vendor you use, you know, every EHR is its own snowflake EHR. And then the way doctors code things are different across systems. And so it's typically very challenging to develop algorithms that generalize well. Um, It takes a lot of work. It can be done, but it just takes a lot of effort. But what they showed in this paper is that using this FECAP framework, and I will mention several of the co-authors are part of the Emerge Network, and so they learned a lot of this, I think, through that participation in that collaborative group. But the 
the sites that developed this and used it were Partners Healthcare and Brigham and Women's in Boston, Northwestern in Chicago, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, the Boston Children's Hospital, and then the VA health system. So across nationwide, the VA. So that was looking at 22 million patients in their enterprise data warehouse. And so the fact that they were able to develop this framework and apply it so successfully across five different health systems that have very different EMRs. So two of them use a commercial vendor and three of them have their own homegrown EHR systems. I thought was really impressive. Um, So it's an algorithm that I haven't tried yet, but it's something that I definitely want to try to deploy to do some phenotype development here at Penn. Um, So I'd highly recommend taking a look at this paper. I think, especially if you haven't done EHR phenotype development before, it's very well laid out on how to do it. Yeah, I agree. I I really enjoyed reading this paper, just mostly from an educational perspective, just seeing how they piece together all the all the different parts to to do to do phenotyping. And um, I I think I mean we've talked about deep phenotyping and in, in previous podcasts, and uh, this is such an important area. I was really happy to see this paper published. We need more of these kind of papers uh, in in the community. Um, and I, I, I think for people interested in this, this is a good paper to read, see how it's done, see how they did it. And then what really, you know, what I was thinking about as I was reading it is just all the innovative ways you could go off on tangents with this. This is one way to do it, right? I mean, there are a million different ways to implement these phenotyping algorithms and endless research projects to figure out what is the best way to do it. What are the best machine learning algorithms to use in this pipeline? Mm-hmm. So you could take something like this and plug and play different unsupervised and supervised machine learning algorithms. So uh, anyway, I I think this will be an impactful paper and an impactful software. And um, it is available in R. They they released the R code that you can go and try. And so, yeah, I highly recommend taking a look at it. Yeah. And I thought it was great that they put so many details in the paper that this reproducibility question. So I think to your point, you could take this approach in R with your data, run it as is, and then swap in and out different yeah. machine learning methods so that you can really compare it and get a sense for how it works. Yeah. Now on to our open data discussion. Each episode, we hope to discuss a useful source of open data. Today, our selection is the Phoenix Toolkit. Marilyn's going to introduce the topic. Okay. I picked the Phoenix Toolkit for this Um, Because I don't think this resource gets enough attention. And it's not open data per se. It's it's a treasure trove of tools to collect data. And the tools are free. So it's open in that way. So it's all open source, publicly available. So first, uh, I'll describe what Phoenix is, because I think a lot of people haven't heard of it. So it's P-H-E-N-X. And it is an NHGRI-funded initiative. Um, I'm actually on the steering committee. I have been for the last couple of years. And through that, I've learned a lot more about it. Prior to that, I had only heard a little bit about it. I used it um, in collaboration with the Marshfield Biobank um, several years ago, actually as part of one of those Emerge Network projects. But what the Phoenix Toolkit does, they have domain working groups that get together, and these are epidemiologists and clinicians that have domain expertise in particular areas, and they go out into the literature and find 
validated surveys to survey research participants in different areas. And then they harmonize those validated surveys and aggregate them into a small, kind of easy to facilitate survey. And they're in many, many, many areas. So just quickly to read through, there are 25 research domains that they cover. Out of those 25 domains, there are 794 different protocols in the toolkit. These range from alcohol, tobacco, and substance use, anthropometric, anthropometrics, cancer, cardiovascular, diabetes, environmental exposures, infectious disease, neurology, nutrition and dietary, ocular, psychiatric, pregnancy, respiratory, social environments. I mean, they run the gamut of clinical surveys and environmental and social determinants of health surveys. Each one has a set of questions that have already been validated by epidemiologists, so they're ready to go. They are freely available, so you just click Add to My Toolkit, and then you can download them. You can download them as paper surveys or as red cap surveys. So they have already done the work to implement them as red cap surveys that you could just plug into your own instance of red cap. And they just made it so easy to do survey-based research on any study population that you would want to do. So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how to use these surveys in conjunction with electronic health records. So, you know, we talk a lot about the pros and cons of electronic health record derived phenotype data in comparison with epidemiologic population-based data that we get from surveys. And there are some things that we get better in surveys and some things we get better out of the EHR. Well, there's nothing other than time and resources that prevents us from doing surveys like this on our EHR, you know, patient participants in research. And so I'm thinking a lot about how to roll these out so that we would have the, the best of both worlds. We'll have the EHR data on our patients, but then we would also be able to survey the social determinants of health, their environmental exposures, you know, their dietary and nutrition or physical activity things that we don't really capture in the EHR really well. So if you, you know, have interest in survey type data so that you could generate large open data sets, I think this toolkit is extremely impressive and takes so much of the work off of what you would need to do in order to implement something like this. Yeah, this is an amazing resource. I've never used it, but uh, yeah, thank, thanks for that. Now on to our Biomedical Informatics Conference update. Marilyn? Well, we just returned from the 2020 Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing. Um, as Jason mentioned earlier, this was the 25th anniversary of the meeting, and it was fabulous. The attendance was higher than uh, maybe it's ever been. The science was incredible. Um, we had great weather, which is not hard to do at that location. Um, and yeah, it was so thank you to anyone who's listening who participated in the conference. I thought it was great. I had wonderful conversations in the sessions and outside during the the breaks and the meals. And we're already deep into the planning for PSB 2021. Um, I should just mention um, there's not a lot of time left, but session proposals for PSB are due February 8th of 2020. So that's for sessions or workshops. You know, PSB is a conference where, we create the agenda based on what conference participants submit as session and workshop proposals. So we have no predetermined 
topics that we plan to do at PSB for next year. It's really you, the community, who chooses and sets the agenda for the meeting. So there's still about a week left to put your session or workshop proposal together. Yeah, I think this is one of the great aspects of PSB is that they do solicit session ideas from the community. And um, each year, uh, you know, I think the sessions are always informative. They're always interesting. They're always cutting edge. And there's a good diversity of different sessions. So there's something for everybody. And uh, so definitely, definitely um, put a team together, submit a session um, and participate in the conference. It's, it's a fantastic one. Okay, the um, deadline, paper deadline for the American Medical Informatics Association is um, on March 12th. I think 11th, March 11th. March 11th. Uh, so that's coming up really soon. So now's the time to be thinking about AMIA papers. And for those of you that have not been to AMIA, these are full-length papers that are peer-reviewed. Um, and the accepted papers get invited for oral talks uh, at the conference, and and the accepted papers are published in the AMIA proceedings uh, volume. So that's coming up soon, so be thinking about that now. The AMIA summits are coming up soon. So the date for the AMIA informatics summit is March 23rd to the 26th, and this year it is in Houston, Texas. This is the first time that the AMIA Informatics Summit is leaving San Francisco. It has been there since it was created, and they are on the road and going to Texas. Um, I'm actually the vice chair for the Translational Bioinformatics track this year. Um, the schedule is posted on the website now, and we have a fabulous agenda. Um, we have Atul Butte from UCSF doing the opening keynote and we have Nick Tatnetti doing a year in review on TBI and data science. And then we have Peter Emby doing a year in review on clinical research informatics and implementation informatics. And then hot off the press, I don't even think it's on the website yet, Dr. Janina Jeff from Illumina is going to be the closing keynote. So we have great speakers. The topics of all the sessions look fabulous. I will mention, if you've gone in the past, pay attention to the schedule because it is different this year. Um, it used to be that they would try to separate the tracks out by days and you would have you know, two days that were more translational, two days that were more clinical. The way that the submissions came in this year, they're pretty evenly distributed. And so all four tracks have sessions happening on all four days of the meeting. So we're really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a great conference. Highly recommend it. Um, I'll just mention briefly, uh, Marilyn and I chair uh, a niche uh, workshop every year called the Epistasis Discovery in Genetics and Epidemiology or EDGE workshop. So we're getting ready to go do that. I think, uh, I forget what year this is, Marilyn, but more than 10, right? I think we've... Oh, I, mean, I think year, so. Year 11 or 12, I think. Um, I, think we, I think we had our 10th year recently. But anyway, this is a this is a workshop that we've um, organized along with Scott Williams from Case Western uh, Reserve University, um, and we we it's it's an interesting workshop because we get a group of people together from around the country, around the world, uh, and like-minded people who um, are interested in this particular niche topic, and it's a safe place where we can get together and exchange ideas and not 
you know, not feel competition or criticism. And I think there's a lot to be said for these kinds of workshops. And we've really enjoyed it. And, we, and a lot of good things have come out of it. So we're uh, looking forward to that next week. And then I'm uh, co-organizing with a group from Dartmouth College, the Comp to Clinic workshop, uh, which focuses on AI and healthcare at the end of February. That'll be in, in Malta. It's part of a, a bigger conference called Biostech, uh, B-I-O-S-T-E-C, which is the 13th International Joint Conference on Biomedical Engineering Systems and Technology, which includes a bioinformatics conference, the 11th International Conference on Bioinformatics Models, Methods, and Algorithms. And so we, uh, we have a lineup of speakers and uh, are looking forward to that workshop. Also, uh, I'll mention again that I'm working with Dr. Zach Kohani from Harvard, Suchi Saria from Johns Hopkins, Nick Tatnetti from Columbia, and Jesse Tenenbaum from Duke to plan and host the very first Symposium on Artificial Intelligence for Learning Health Systems, or SAIL, on April 27th through 29th uh, in Bermuda. SAIL's a new annual international conference exploring the integration of AI techniques into clinical medicine. It'll provide a forum for clinicians, clinical informaticians, and AI researchers uh, to discuss approaches and challenges to using these approaches in the healthcare domain. We had over 100 abstract submissions, and we recently reviewed all of those um, and um, picked um, our uh, speakers and posters, and we have a distinguished group of invited speakers and panelists that are on our webpage, sale.health. Keynotes include Michael Abramoff, Yale Garten, and Ricky Blomfield. So we're really looking forward to this um, and hope this will be a premier uh, venue for thinking about AI and healthcare, and there's a real focus on clinical practice uh, in this. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is how to deal with someone else having my idea, especially when they do it first. So I felt like this was timely to talk about now, one, because of the Nature article that we talked about earlier, talking about competition and the stresses as scientists, but also it has come up in my lab at least three times in the last six months where somebody will come in so distraught because they just saw a bioarchive paper on something they were hoping to work on. Oh, so-and-so did it first. That was my idea. Did you tell them that idea? No, but we both had the idea, but they already did it. And they are so discouraged that somebody else had their idea which is the opposite reaction to what I typically have. When I see somebody else had the same idea that I did, my first thought is, oh, it was a good idea. Because you never know. Some ideas are good and some actually turn out to be not so good. So I actually get encouraged that my idea was a good one when I see that somebody else also did the same thing. But then also, as soon as you dig into the paper and look at what did they do, they never or I should say almost never, but in my experience, has not one time when somebody else did the same thing I hoped to do, they didn't do it the way I would have done it. There are always differences in how the algorithm worked out or how they did the analysis or what controls they used, what covariates, what, there's always something different. And when I look at it, I go, oh, okay, yes, good idea, but I would have done it this other way. And so I typically do, and I just do the work the other way. 
So I started researching this a little bit because I I feel like with some of my trainees, I've told them more than once that it's not a bad thing when somebody else does your idea before you do, but they kind of have it in their mind that it's a bad thing and they got scooped. They never even said it out loud and they got scooped and it it's very stressful for them. So I did come across a podcast on this. Um, it's by Jenna Kutcher. So she has a podcast called The Gold Digger. It's actually for entrepreneurs, so it has nothing to do with science. But the the blog post was about, I mean, this is the title, is how to deal with somebody else having my idea, especially when they do it first. And if you listen to that podcast, the the ideas and the framing are the same concepts that we think about in science. So in entrepreneurs, they're afraid somebody else creates the business before they did, or they create the product before they did. Here, we're worried somebody's going to scoop the idea. And to avoid that, people tend to try to be secretive with their ideas so that they avoid getting scooped. But most of the time, great ideas come from seeing something else, and it's the logical next step. And so it's not surprising that other people share that great idea that you have. Um, I think it's a mistake when we hide our ideas because the way that science moves forward is by sharing these ideas. Other people will come up with better strategies once they see what you've done. That's the whole point. We move science forward whenever we show what we've done and we let people build upon it. And other people show us what they've done and then we build upon that. So I don't fully understand why we feel so threatened and insecure when we see this, but I think we need to really try to shift our mindset. And I certainly do this routinely when it happens to me and focus on having an abundance mindset, which is that more than one person can solve the problem. There's more than one way to do it rather than the scarcity mindset that once it's been published, it can't be done again. Or once somebody else had the idea, mine is no good. Um, I think my point earlier, nobody's going to approach the topic the same way you do. So I think even if you see that it's been done, you should do it again with your perspective and bringing your unique experiences to whatever topic it is that you're working on. Even if it's been done before, it hasn't been done before by you. And so you should do it the way that you would, would have done it or think it should be done. Um, I think that it's actually a really good thing when we see multiple people having the same idea. It validates that that was a good idea the results can be kind of replicated or if you see the same thing multiple different ways, that's actually reaffirming that that finding might be interesting and real. And so even if you're not the first one to do it, you might be the confirmatory one to do it or the one that validates it. And sometimes people actually believe the validation more than they do believe the original study. They believe the confirmation. So my kind of mindset about this is that great ideas are meant to be shared we should not be keeping them secret. Um, that's why I'm loving this kind of preprint idea where we're publishing things in preprint servers even before they go through peer review because it's getting the ideas out faster so that other scientists can build upon those ideas. And I think the more that we as scientists push for this, this mindset of our goal is to move science forward, to make discoveries. Our goal should not be to move our career forward and move our own personal success forward. I think that's where this kind of insecurity and threatening mindset comes from. We're worried somebody else did it first. That's a ding on me and my career. But if 
we can let that go and focus on getting our great ideas out into the world and build upon each other's and let go of that fear, I think we will all do better science in the end, which in turn will elevate all of our careers. We will all kind of move through and have personal successes. I think the more that we put up walls and close ourselves off and don't share our ideas, that actually limits our potential to make discoveries as scientists. So I highly encourage listening to this podcast, this one by Jenna Kutcher. Um, we have a link to the show notes to the exact episode. It's jennacutcherblog.com slash idea. She also has a blog post about it. And like I said, even though her points are really for entrepreneurs, if you can kind of get past that, I mean, as scientists, we are entrepreneurs. Our, our scientific discoveries are our products and the things that we're trying to market. I know. So Jason, what I started to say was, you know, does this happen to you? But I know the answer is yes, because this happens to everyone. <laughs> so instead, <clears throat> I should ask you, when this happens to you, how do you deal with it? Well, let me let me first say, well, first of all, I, I think this is an outstanding topic. So I'm really happy that you picked this. I think um, it's an important topic, especially for young scientists to think about. Um, and I think everybody does experience this from time to time, some more than others. It um, depends on what kind of field you're working in. If you're working in the deep learning field, this has to be happening all the time because everybody's doing deep learning. It's moving so fast. And if you have a good idea in deep learning, the odds are a lot of other people have the same idea. And then it's a race to see who can get it out the fastest. So um, I think to some degree it depends on how hot the area is that you're that you're working on. But let me let me say, I like your first question better. <laughs> Does this happen to me? And I I would say in my career this has actually happened pretty infrequently. And I think the reason is because I just work on a lot of wild crazy stuff, right? Uh, I I've never thought of my research as being mainstream, you know. Um, <clears throat> so. Um, it hasn't happened to me very often. Um, I would say where I've encountered this the most is probably in my grant writing, where when I write a methodologic grant, the most important thing is innovation, right? You have to demonstrate that your algorithm is innovative, it's new, it's different, nobody's ever done it before, which is what that usually means. So the first thing I do when I have an idea for a grant is I go out and do a Google search. I do a PubMed search. I see what's out there. Have other people done something similar? And there have been cases where I have this, what I think is a brilliant idea, and I go out and find maybe it's just one paper, maybe it's an obscure paper, but I find it on Google, which means a reviewer can find it, right? Which means this is no longer an innovative idea and I have to move on to something else. And so um, I, the stress comes not necessarily because somebody else had the idea, but the stress comes from, oh crap, now I need to come up with another new idea, another new innovative idea. So I think that's where I've uh, encountered this uh, the most. But in, in terms of your second question, how do I deal with it? Um, I agree with you. I, this doesn't really bother me that much. Um, I If I see something that somebody's done that's similar to an idea I had or one of my students had, um, I agree with you. Most of the time, the other the other folks just didn't do it as well, or didn't or did it differently than we would have done it. And and I've never let that be a barrier to actually doing doing the work. Yeah, you have to cite their paper because they did it first. But you know that goes in the introduction. You cite their work, and then you build on it, and you do something else that's innovative or different. And I agree with you. That's how science moves forward. 
yeah, maybe they published it in Nature and Science and you're stuck with, you know, uh, a lesser high impact journal. Um, but I, as I said earlier, I've never been too worried about impact factors. So that really doesn't bother me all that much. If I feel like I can do something different, do something important, have an impact, then I'm just, I'm perfectly happy to publish that, even if somebody else had the original idea first. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important, especially for the young scientists, to try to wrap your heads around this and get the mindset shift early in your career. Because what I see coming is more and more open source tools, which means they're available to everyone, more and more reproducible research, which means you can redo what somebody else did and do it much faster than they did because they've just told you how to do it, and more and more open data. And so it is most likely that more often we are going to see these collisions where you take a public data set like the UK Biobank, for example, and use some open source tool on those data to ask a question. And it could be that four different labs are doing the exact same thing with that data set. That could create a lot of anxiety unless you approach it as, okay, I'm going to do step one and then keep an eye on the literature. If somebody else also did step one, have planned in mind, what will you do next? What other kind of innovative analyses might you do? You know, what's funny is, is this actually just happened to me today. I just realized no. <clears throat> that, that um, I, I had a collaborator in my office and we've been working on a paper and we're pretty far along. We're getting, you know, probably a few weeks away from submitting. We're doing some final, final uh, analyses. And, um, and this collaborator said they received a preprint from another collaborator doing something similar. And they're further along and they're getting ready to submit. And they're probably about a month ahead of us. And their paper is clearly going to come out first um, and probably in a higher impact journal because our, our study is a little more methodologic and theirs is a little more applied with big data, you know, more da big data sets, which means they're going to get into a higher impact journal. And, and the collaborator was a little concerned about this. And, um, and, and, the first author who was not in the room who works with the collaborator was also said he said was concerned about this so they were a little despondent about this paper and i said well you've read the paper the you know the competing paper did they do x y and z and my collaborator said no i said well there's your answer do x y and z and then you've got something that's novel and perhaps even better than what they did and so uh, this is how science progresses right there's there's right you know, and we weren't going to submit to science or nature anyway with this paper. So what does it matter? You know, what does it matter? You know, science is going to progress. And if anything, it forces us to be more innovative, more creative in our approach. Right. So that competition is a good thing. It, it's what moves us forward and helps us make our work better. That's right. Unfortunately, it does create some stress, as we talked about earlier in young people. And I think that's I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, you know, there's, I think, a time and a place for some, some amount of stress, but I think some, some, of, some of the stress we feel in these situations is unwarranted. Yeah. So my advice would be, you know, be ready for this scenario. It will absolutely happen to you. If you're being innovative and coming up with ideas, someone else will have the idea first. And just don't let this be one of the things that you spend too much of your stress time on. There are enough other things to be stressed about. I think this one 
you can kind of file into the, like, don't worry so much about it. Just be ready for it. Yeah. It's easy to be productive even when other people are having your ideas. Marilyn, any closing remarks? Well, it's hard to believe, but we're nearing the end of January already. I don't know how that's possible. It feels like the year has started off crazy busy and looks like there's no end of that in sight. Um, it's such an exciting time to be in biomedical informatics, and there's just so many opportunities and things to do. Um, I have definitely been feeling um, overwhelmed. That assistant professor that said, gosh, that was such a busy year. You're right. It Every year gets busier, and the start of this year has felt really busy. But I've been working really hard, especially this past week as I've been feeling pretty overwhelmed, to really focus on work-life balance and all that stress and anxiety. Um, we face these issues all the time, but while we're waiting for that uh, culture change that that article talked about, uh, that nature article, I think a huge part of it we have to do ourselves. So um, you know, managing stress is something I, I think a lot about. It's an individual experience because we all do that differently. Um, so I would encourage listeners to figure out what it is for you to to deal with your stress and take that into your own hands. Um, on Sunday, I needed to work on my grant, but I kept staring at the computer screen and just could not write. And so I went to yoga for an hour and it cleared my mind. I was breathing. I got back and I was able to start to think again. And I could have sat there that hour and just stared at the computer, but I found, you know, I needed to do something else to get rid of the stress. I think, you know, the to-do list never gets all checked off. There's so much more to do. And so part of the beauty of being a scientist is that we always come up with new ideas and new things to do. So um, that means, though, that our work is never done. So I always have a to-do list with items on it. So, uh, you know, we can't fix all of that cultural stuff that was in that article ourselves. But I think as much as we can control our 24 hours a day and balance our own stress and kind of manage our own time, I think it's really important. So that's something, you know, I certainly strive to do, but in this busy time of year, it's, I think, even more important to think about. Yeah, I, I agree. So we're getting ready to launch a search here at Penn Medicine for the next chair of our Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, and Informatics. And when, when it does come out, I'll, I'll uh, make an announcement on the podcast. Uh, the job should come out, job ad should come out within the next several weeks. But as a department, we've spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about a vision for the future. Um, and I have been giving a lot of thought uh, about this for the department and have been thinking more specifically about what the, ten, the next 10 years of biomedical informatics looks like. Uh, this is important to me personally because it will define the second half of my career. I've been a professor for 20 years. I figure I have another probably another 20 good years left in me. So what is, you know, what does the next 10 years look like? What's, what's the second half of my career going to look like? Um, in addition, I enjoy helping other departments and centers around the country think about what is next. Like many leaders in the field, I get calls from headhunters and leaders at other institutions about leadership opportunities. And I, you know, I think they partly hope to get me interested in a position elsewhere. Uh, we all do that. But mostly, I think they want to pick my brain about possible candidates. But what I enjoy most about talking to them um, is about the 10-year vision for the institution that they represent. And what fascinates me is that many institutions have no vision for 
informatics or data science or whatever it is uh, for you know the search that they're that they're doing, they're looking for a leader to come in and establish that vision. In some ways, this makes sense. How would non-informaticians know what the next ten years of informatics looks like? On the other hand, informatics is now so tightly intertwined with everything we do in biomedical research and clinical practice. It seems like institutions should be able to articulate a vision for informatics, at least at a non-technical level, mm-hmm. right? Articulate what, what is it we need and why do we need it? And where do, where do we want as, as an institution to be in 10 years and how is informatics going to impact that? So while I like to think I have a vision for the future, um, there are times when I think that the field is moving too fast to have any clue where it's going. Yep. For example, we're all very excited about mining EHR data, and this area has absolutely exploded over the last five years. Will the opportunities that derive from EHR data continue uh, to explode, or will the challenges that we have talked about on this podcast slow us down to a a trickle? Um, There's no question that AI and machine learning is going to play a big role over the next 10 years, but will it continue at the pace we've seen in recent years, or will advancements in that area slow as reality sets in? Will the focus shift shift to wearable devices, social media, and genomics? Where does the environment fit in? Will the next decade be the era of measuring our ecology and environmental history and incorporating that into the health research landscape? Will the next 10 years be the decade of the learning health system? Are we just riding a big biomedical informatics bubble that's about to burst? <laughs> um, I'm by nature an optimist and think the next 10 years will be bright. I think biomedical informatics uh, is going to continue to explode. Uh, I'm pretty confident about that. But I'm less sure about what we will be talking about in 10 years on this podcast. Yeah, I think it, it is really hard to think about what things will look like in 10 years. I mean, thinking back 10 years, I mean, gosh, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, that the iPhone was created. It was more than 10 years, but not by much. I've had conversations with my 14-year-old about, you know, well, what did you do? How did you use your phone when you were in middle school? Like, we didn't have phones. I mean, we had landlines, but we didn't have cell phones in middle school. Or, some of the different apps that the kids are using to do things, I'm like, what are you doing? And I look over at it and my goodness, the things that we're able to do now that I wouldn't have predicted two years ago, much less 10 years ago. Um, The fact that we have FaceTime and Skype now and can video phone with people, that was something in the cartoons when we were kids, like the Jetsons. That was futuristic. (laughs) Um, Self-driving cars. They're a reality now, not on every road and every car, but there are self-driving cars. And so so I think you're right. It's very hard to sit here and project what kind of data will we be working with in 10 years? I mean, maybe we're all going to be chipped and we don't need to worry about asking people about their exposures because we're just going to measure them in their blood or in their urine or, you know, we're going to have some sort of sensors all over us in 10 years. Who knows? I think... Uh, I think we can't go wrong with being in informatics because all of the technologies are only producing more data. So as long as we stay interested in data, we'll probably be all right. But but it is hard to predict. I think this would be a good topic for a future podcast to maybe get a couple more people in the room and really have a you know a brainstorming session about what the next 10 years looks like. I think that would be a lot of fun. And I would just say for 
mid-career scientists out there who have leadership aspirations, these are the kinds of questions you get asked on interviews for department chair and center director positions. You know, what does the next 10 years look like? What's your vision for the future? How are you going to get there? What's your plan? So things, things to think about. All right. Uh, I think that's a wrap for today. Um, and we will see you next time on the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online at bmipodcast.org. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia. <laughs>